Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we now commit our lives to you, Lord, asking that your Spirit might speak to us plainly, that if there are things that need to be dealt with, that they would be dealt with here in this place of intimacy with you as you speak to us over the pages of your word. May we be faithful and humble to confess those things to you that you might forgive us and restore us in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may remember back to 1971, the historic fight between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. And before the fight on March 8th, Muhammad Ali was being interviewed and he said, there seems to be some confusion here. We're going to clear up this confusion on March 8th. We're going to decide once for all who the king is. There's not a man alive who can whoop me. He starts jabbing the air a few times. Points to his head. He said, I'm too smart. Puts his chest out and kind of on a profile. He says, I'm too pretty. And Muhammad Ali went on to say, I am the greatest, I am the king, I should be a postage stamp, that's the only way I could ever get licked. (laughs) P.S. He lost. (laughs) Chapter 4 is the story of a successful man, a man who became great in his kingdom, named Nebuchadnezzar. But he failed to give God the glory. He became self-promoting. He became self-exalting, and God, in this chapter, can put this man down. But chapter 4 answers an important question to us, and the question is this. What is the only attitude of heart that a person can have in which God will deliberately oppose or resist that person? The answer is pride. For the Scripture says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So the one attitude of heart that a person can have that which God will oppose him at every turn is a prideful heart. And the only answer to a prideful heart is also found in this text. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I heard about a Texan who went to the Niagara Falls. Now, nothing bad on Texans, but you know that historically people from Texas think they have the biggest and the best. And he went to Niagara Falls and he saw this huge waterfall and the New Yorker said, you have anything this big in Texas? The Texan said, no, but we sure have plumbers who can fix it. <laughs> now, as you know, pride is something that infects all of us. It goes way, way back in our history from the beginning of man. Actually, before man was ever created, there was a man, or excuse me, there was a being named Lucifer who became the devil. But at first, he was simply a spirit being who was very beautiful. He was in charge of dominions and power and Seeing his beauty, he wanted more. And so he puffed himself up. And in Isaiah chapter 14, he said, I will ascend above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. That's where it all began. I will be like God. Of course, God says, you won't either. And he put him down into Sheol, into the sides of the pit, it says in Isaiah 14. But pride goes before a fall. It's something that we read about many times throughout the Scripture. And the devil was not content with just that one episode of pride. He decided to infect human beings. And in the Garden of Eden, we read that Adam and Eve were there, and the devil came to Eve. And Eve said, we can't eat of this tree. We can eat of all of the other trees of the garden, but this one we can't eat of. The devil says, you know why you can't eat of it? Because God knows in the day that you do, you'll be as wise as God. Hmm, wise as God, huh? 
And right there in her heart began that infection of pride into the human stream. And pride is simply pushing God off. It's dethroning God. It's putting yourself upon the throne and giving yourself the credit and letting yourself run your life rather than God. Pride infects everyone. If you let pride go on unchecked and undealt with, it will destroy your life. It will destroy your life. Why is it that people, some people don't feel their need to come to Christ? They feel they don't need a Savior. Pride. Why is it that husbands and wives, some of them, fail to reconcile their differences and forgive one another? Pride. Why is it that parents and children carry lifelong grudges that often they go to their graves with? Pride. Why is it that nations who hate each other can't seem to come to the negotiating table and work out their differences? Pride. Why is it that churches split over petty little things? Pride. You say, well, it ought not to be in Christians. Well, you're right, but also you have an old nature. Because you're redeemed as a Christian doesn't mean that pride doesn't dwell within you or me. Because we are people and we have an old nature, we're still infected with pride, and the worst of all pride is spiritual pride. Spiritual pride uses God to cover up its sin. Now, in verse 19, it says, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. He answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, which could, not, which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the air had their home. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Now, if you weren't here last week, this is sort of the follow-up of what happened last time. This guy has a dream. It troubles him. It bothers him. He brings in all of the people who should interpret it. They can't pull it off. Finally, Daniel comes in, stands before the king, and unlocks the secret that was troubling Nebuchadnezzar. And basically, the rest of this chapter shows that God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Daniel pushes the issue with Nebuchadnezzar, telling him that he should change his ways. Nebuchadnezzar becomes prideful and haughty. He becomes humiliated, and then God restores him back to himself. So for the purpose of outlining it and for memory, first of all is revelation. God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. Then there is confrontation, where Daniel presses the point home a little further. Then thirdly, humiliation, because he doesn't repent or change his ways. But finally, restoration in the last part of this chapter. In verse 23, we continue, Inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, 
They shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Now Daniel comes before the king and he does his job. He communicates the meaning, the interpretation of the dream. That's what he's called to do. That's his job description. But there's a problem. Daniel is moved. He's agitated emotionally. Back in verse 19, it says he was astonished for a time and his thoughts troubled him. Now I want you to compare that with verse 9 that we read last week. Turn back to verse 9. Nebuchadnezzar, speaking to Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, said, Because I know that the Spirit of the Holy God is in you, that no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen. Now, on one hand, Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, I've called you in because even though you know the future, it doesn't bother you. You're not shaken visibly by these revelations. Yet in verse 19, Daniel is shaken. And Nebuchadnezzar notices it. You're bothered by it. Don't let this thing bother you, Daniel. Now, why is it that Daniel, a man whose reputation is one where he doesn't become unruffled, here he's pretty unruffled. He's a little bit agitated. It's not because he knows the future is judgment, but because he knows that the judgment involves someone that he loves, Nebuchadnezzar. Someone that he had come to serve and to respect, Now, here's my point. Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king. He probably had a lot of weird policies, wrong policies, ungodly policies. Daniel did not agree with those policies. Daniel did not submit unto his gods. And yet, there was such a love and a respect that even in sharing the truth with this man, he wanted to give a favorable interpretation. But he had to speak the truth. Knowing what this dream meant, he was shaken by it because he respected and he loved Nebuchadnezzar. You know that when you share the gospel with an unbeliever, they know if you love them or not. They know that if you really are concerned and care about them or if it's just something that you have to do to alleviate the guilt that you might be feeling. And my real point is this. You don't automatically have to dislike unbelievers who are in authority, or anybody in authority for that matter. It seems that some people feel automatically if somebody is in authority over them in any realm of life, something must be wrong with that person. There must be evil lurking. And there are some people who disdain authority so much, even Christians, that they delight when somebody falls from that position of authority, be he police or president or pastor or parent. In a recent book by James Patterson, he asked Americans to grade, as if on a report card, authority in America. The results said, We asked people to give letter grades from A to F to leaders in four categories, religion, politics, business, and education. The highest grade that any kind of leader got was a C-plus for religion. All of the others got low seeds or even the grade of D. C- minus was the combined grade average for leadership in America. That's the tendency nowadays of most Americans towards leadership. It can't be trusted, and it's great when they fall. And I think anybody else except a Daniel 
Anyone less than a Daniel would have rejoiced at this interpretation. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall. Hey, great. Finally, you get what's coming to you, Neb. God's going to smite you, and I can't wait. But not Daniel. Daniel's shaken by it. Daniel doesn't agree with the king, but he respects the king. He's grown to love the king. In verses 20 all the way through verse 26, Daniel quickly gets to the point. He says, King, you're the, you're the tree. You have been flourishing. You are very prominent. God has given you an incredible kingdom, but it's not going to last. Your tree will be chopped down. Now, throughout the scripture, the tree is often a symbol of authority, either of a person or of a nation. In the book of Ezekiel, Assyria is called the great cedar tree, greater than all of the trees of the field. In Genesis 49, Joseph is seen as a fruitful branch, a vine that grows strong and his branches go over the wall. So Nebuchadnezzar, you're a great flourishing tree. Everybody knows you're in charge, but you're going to be cut down to size. You're going to be a stump. God will bring you back, but for a while you will be humiliated. Now what happens with this dream with this episode is what happens to every person who hears the gospel. They are given information. They hear about Jesus Christ. They hear about the cross. They hear about salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. And they hear about it either through a person who loves them and puts their arm around them and shares the gospel as a representative, or they hear it on television or on radio or on a tract or something. At that point where the information comes across and the Spirit of God uses it to touch their hearts. They can either accept it or they can reject it. They can, in pride, push it off or they can say, well, I need to do something about it. Nebuchadnezzar decides to push it off, as we're going to see in just a minute. Remember Jesus spoke of the sower who went out to sow seed and some of the seed fell by the wayside Jesus said, these are people who hear the word of God, but the devil immediately comes and snatches that which was sown in their hearts. The truth goes out and people say, reject, reject, forget it, don't want to listen to it. And so, the second phase comes in, verse 27, confrontation. After giving the dream, Daniel presses the point a little bit further now in verse 27. He doesn't say, okay, I've done my job, I'm out of here. He loves him enough to confront him. Listen. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Notice that Daniel wasn't content with just, here's the revelation of the dream, but you know what, king? It could be that God is so gracious, merciful, and patient that if right now you decide to repent and turn, this could be the end of it. God could forgive you right here and now. Loving confrontation. I feel that loving confrontation is a missing ingredient in the church today, in homes today. Loving confrontation, compassionate confrontation. And I choose those words very carefully. I'm not talking about pure compassion that refuses to confront. Nor am I talking about bold confrontation who just loves to find faults and point them out in the name of God, but the mixture of compassionate confrontation. 
There are some people who just like to tolerate anything and I'll let it go by. Let's not worry about it. And they don't want to confront. They hate confrontation. There are others who love it. They look for it. They find some little flaw and their bony little finger goes up to point at that person. Sinah! They love, they're eager to find some fault and bring it up. So on one hand, you don't want to be a spiritual ostrich with your head in the sand. On the other hand, you don't want to be a fault finder and a sin sniffer trying to find every little fault. The combination is compassionate confrontation. It can yield great results. It's part of the job of every pastor, by the way. A pastor's calling of God is not just to say things that people will like, just to get them coming back. Make them feel good so they'll keep coming and keep giving. On one hand, a pastor is to love and to encourage and to feed all of those things. As Paul told the Thessalonian leaders, he said, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. But then he also said, warn the unruly. Warn those who are unruly. Martin Luther, a man who knew confrontation, as he spoke out against the Roman church and all of its traditions, trying to uphold the word of God, said every preacher must both be a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish, he must teach, but he must also have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite. That doesn't mean he's to chew people up and spit them out, but he's to warn the unruly. Also, it is the job description of every Christian to confront. Did you know that? When you see somebody in error, you must love them enough to, with a heart of love, speak the truth in love and to confront. Jesus did it often. Paul did it a lot. Paul did it with teachers in the church, with heretics in the church, even with beloved brothers. You know that when Peter and Paul had a spat, a little problem going on in Antioch, Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, I went up to Peter and I withstood him face to face because he was to be blamed. It wasn't that Paul was trying to assert his authority and saying, I'm the boss now, I'm Mr. Apostle. But there was something that needed to be worked out and he lovingly confronted him. I'd like you to turn to Galatians chapter 6 for just a few moments because I think it's a good sum-up passage in this for the duty of all Christians. Galatians chapter 6, and it's just the first verse. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. There is a wonderful passage of the mandate for all believers to when we see problems, flaws, sin, error, that we love enough to confront but with compassion. Make sure you're qualified, though, to do that. It doesn't say just go out and just start spouting off things that are wrong. First of all, you've got to be qualified. You need the right foundation. You who are spiritual, you have to have the fruits of the Spirit in your own life, be mature enough that you're filled with the Spirit. You're to have also the right motivation. Notice it says to restore such a one, not to condemn such a one, not to make the other person squirm and wiggle. The purpose is to restore them. You want to see the best for them. You also have to have the right attitude in the spirit of gentleness, not harshness or condemnation. You do it gently. And then finally, you need the right precaution, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. 
God never called you to walk up to someone. Thus saith the Lord, creep. And then walk away. Or to write them an anonymous letter. In fact, I don't like letters at all. You don't have a chance to respond to them. I mean face to face. Voice to voice. You're spiritual. You're walking in the Spirit. You're in that group where you are accountable and they're accountable to you. You've earned that right. And because you have that right, you love them enough to say, You know, King, if right now you turn, it could be that God will extend His mercy to you and you lovingly confront. And I think the right combination of compassion and confrontation can be wonderful. Let me give you an example. Years ago in London, the elite of London came to a party one evening to celebrate this noted singer named Miss Elliot, who was in their midst. And one of the people in that group was a famous preacher in London by the name of Caesar Milan. And after her uh, glorious presentation and song, this pastor came up to this young woman and put his arm on her shoulder and says, Young lady, I couldn't help but think, with that tremendous voice and talent you have, how much God could use that talent if you were to surrender it to Him. How much you could benefit the kingdom of God if your life were submitted to Him. You know, young lady, you are a sinner in the sight of God. But the good news is that God loves you. And the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you from all sin. How do you think she took it? She was so incensed by the gall of this preacher to speak to this famous person. She rebuked him. He said, I mean no offense. I just pray that God's Spirit will convict you. She went home that night. She couldn't sleep that night. Those words kept tumbling over and over in her mind and in her heart. Two in the morning, 2 a.m., she got up out of bed, took a pencil, piece of paper, gave her heart to Christ, and she wrote the words that have become famous. They're sung now at every Billy Graham crusade. The woman was Charlotte Elliott. And she said, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. tell you, it was a good thing that somebody had the grace mixed with the boldness to share the gospel with her that night. Her songs have been heralded all throughout the world. So when the truth is revealed to you, and when the truth confronts you by someone who seeks to lovingly apply it to your heart, The best thing you can do, the best thing you can do is to submit to it. Right at that point, say, okay, this is God's message to me. I'm going to embrace it and go for it. It's the best thing that can happen. We're on the radio out in Idaho. You say, why are you out there? That's Mormon country. And a few weeks ago, I got one of the best pieces of news I ever heard In that area, there are 70 ruling elders of the Mormon church who officiate in the temple there in Salt Lake City. One of them heard our radio broadcast, the Calvary Connection, over the radio. Upon hearing it, being confronted with the truth, he gave his heart and his life to Jesus Christ, left the Mormon church and gave his testimony in the local church a couple months back. Being confronted with it, he saw the truth and the Spirit of God spoke to his heart. He said, all right, right now I'm going to do it. Now, you can take the other option. After the revelation and the confrontation, you can harden your heart and say, forget it, and move into self-exaltation. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. But God has ways of chasing you, even if that is your attitude. And it's because God loves you. Let's follow the story 
In the next few verses of Daniel chapter 4, we come to this humiliation, or you could call it correction, verse 28. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about in the royal palace of Babylon. Now, before we get into these verses, understand something about pride and how God feels about it. In the book of Proverbs, it says, There are six things that God hates, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. First on the list, a proud look. Someone who puffs himself up. That proud look, that haughty spirit, it says, the Lord detests. So, God seeks now to work with Nebuchadnezzar, who has a proudful heart. But it's corrective. God is correcting him. He's not punishing him. He's correcting him. God's activities toward us today are in grace, not in judgment. Now, one day God will judge the earth. Until then, God acts correctively, not punitively. Oh, you say, God's punishing me right now. No, God's correcting you if something has happened in your life because God seeks a positive result. He seeks to restore you back to himself, to fellowship with himself. And so he disciplines us. He corrects us. And we see that God loves Nebuchadnezzar enough to chase him down and uh, have this thing happen to him. Some of you have loved ones that you're really worried about. And uh, I have some too. You get so disappointed. You think, man, I brought him to church that one day and, and they were so close. They didn't raise their hand, though. I I saw them right there, hard in their heart. But I was sure they were going to do it, but they're still not Christians. Oh, what am I going to do? Hey, release them to the Lord. God is so able, a whole lot better than you are, to work in their hearts. Release them to God. God's not finished with them yet. God has ways of getting their attention. Oh, but they've hardened their hearts. Listen, God is a match for any stubborn person. Jonah is a case in point. I'm not going to obey you. Fine. But Jonah, I love you enough. I'm going to chase you down. And I'm going to make life miserable for you. Not because I want to see you miserable. I want to see you have my best. But you're so hard-hearted and so stubborn, the only way I can get your attention is with this fish. And when you're vomited out on land, and you come to your senses, oh, your life is going to be so awesome. Notice in verse 29, at the end of 12 months, a whole year passes. Why the delay? Why didn't God act immediately after the dream? Here's the dream. Now here goes. It was 12 months later. One word, mercy. God is so patient. Even in judgment, God mixes it with mercy. Did you realize that? He always mixes judgment with some mercy. 12 months pass. It's the same reason God took 430 years before he judged the Canaanites. It's the same reason God took 120 years and had Noah preach the gospel to his generation. It's the same reason that many of you still keep going and nothing has really happened and you think, see, God doesn't care. No, God's patient with you. God's patient with you. Peter said, the Lord is not slack, as some people count slackness, but he's patient toward all, not willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God just happens to be very, very patient. And so he waits. But in verse 30, something happens that causes God to act. The king spoke, saying, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? 
Ooh, as he's looking out over the palace and he sees the wonderful Babylon with its walls and gates. I've done this. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Now it wasn't that he was admiring Babylon, but he took the credit for it. Humanly speaking, Babylon was awesome. The walls were 300 feet tall. They were 65 feet thick. You could have three chariot races on the top of that 300-foot wall around the city. There were bronze gates that opened up, and the river Euphrates, a very wide river, ran through the very center of that walled city. One of the seven wonders of the world was in Babylon, the hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife. They were green, rising gardens that gave her the appearance of mountains because she missed her homeland that had a lot of mountains. They could be seen from outside the city walls. It was magnificent. The ancient writers speak of such. But Nebuchadnezzar, it's not that he admired it, it's that he took credit for it. I've done this. I'm powerful. Really? You're going to eat your words in just a minute, Neb. Your kingdom has departed. Verse 32, And they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. Seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and He gives it to whomever He chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, reading that, you say, that is really bizarre. I mean, it sounds like the spirit of Yule Gibbons has come upon this man (laughs) to the extreme. I bet you didn't know many parts of this weed were edible. He's eating grass. Now, science has confirmed that there is actually a condition called insania zoanthropica, which simply means a guy thinks he's a beast. The guy believes he's an ox or an animal, and he acts like it. There were many throughout history instances of rulers, monarchs, who kind of went nutso and believed weird things of Hitler, Antiochus Epiphanes, George VI, Alexander the Great, King Otto of Bavaria, used to speak to little spirits that lived in the drawers of his pieces of furniture. He had conversations with them. But Nebuchadnezzar, in this temporary form of insanity as a corrective judgment from God to bring him back, thinks he's an ox. You say, ah, that's ridiculous. That's never happened before. Well, it's interesting, back in 1946, Dr. R.K. Harrison, who worked in a British mental institution, picked up on something very similar. Here's his patient. The patient was in his early 20s, reportedly hospitalized for five years. His symptoms were well developed upon admission. The diagnosis was immediate and conclusive. His daily routine consisted of wandering around the magnificent lawns with which the otherwise dingy hospital situation was graced. And it was his custom to pluck up and eat handfuls of the grass as he went along and eat them. He never ate the institutional food with the other inmates. His only drink was water. 
the only physical abnormality noted consisting of a lengthening of the hair and a coarse thickening condition of the fingernails. Without institutional care, the patient would have manifested precisely the same physical condition as those mentioned in Daniel chapter 4. Interesting. Well, here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's out there for seven seasons. Either it's seven seasons, four in one year, so uh, two and a half years, or seven years, we don't know. But now look at verse 34. Here comes the restoration. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth, his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Talk about learning humility. After he learns this lesson, this is a written testimony we read about in verse 1 and 2 that goes throughout the whole world. He's giving a testimony to the people. And in humility, he's talking about what happened to himself. Hey, everybody, I was nuts. I thought I was an ox for seven years. And God used it to get my attention. You know, there are some people that are so hard-headed that God has to use hard means to get through to them. They're just not open. Woe unto him, the Bible says, who strives with his maker. If you strive with God, you're striving against your own good. Because God loves you. But if you strive against God, God can match your wits. God can chase you. Because he loves you. To bring you to a point where you realize, hey, I don't care how big I thought I was, God is able to break down that pride. Proverbs 29, verse 1 says, He who is often reproved and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Nebuchadnezzar hardened his heart, hardened his neck. Fortunately, God in his mercy had that tempered with judgment and brought him back. He thought he was a big shot. God showed him he was a little shot. There's a story about a plane that was traveling from one destination to the other, a small little plane. There were four people aboard. The pilot, of course, was flying it. And in the back was a Boy Scout, a minister, and a computer whiz, a genius. The plane was having trouble. It looked like it was going down. The pilot said, the plane's going down. We have to abandon. There's only three parachutes, but there's four people. Now, I think I should have one, said the pilot. I have a wife and three children. Without asking permission, he grabbed one and jumped out. Just then, the computer whiz, the genius, stood up and said, I'm the smartest man in the world, and the whole world needs me. He grabbed one and jumped out. So it was left to now the minister and the Boy Scout. And the minister said, look, you're a little kid. You've got your whole life ahead of you. I'm a little bit older. I've lived a good life. The Lord has used me. I'll go down with the plane. You jump out with the last parachute. The Boy Scout said, relax, Reverend. The smartest man in the world just jumped out with my backpack. (laughs) 
I think that sort of happened in Nebuchadnezzar, don't you? I built Babylon. This is something that I've done. Here's the backpack, Neb. And boy, did he fall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. But now he turns his heart because God uses it to restore him back to God and he realizes, very, very important, the last verse, let this verse sink in. Never forget it. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Listen, the one condition of heart that God will absolutely resist you in your life is pride. You're fighting God and he opposes you if you walk in pride. And the only cure for pride is repentant humility. Submitting yourself to God. Pride destroys nations. Pride destroys marriages. Where the husband or wife refuse to submit one to another. I'm right. Pride destroys churches, ministries. There are some people when God begins to use, their head swells up and they go, you know, I, I'm the one. I'm, I'm pretty awesome. It's, it's because of me. And that's the beginning of demise. Some of us are like woodpeckers. The woodpecker's pecking at this dry tree. Suddenly lightning comes and splinters it. The bird flies off and says, look what I've done. No, God did it. Don't take the credit for it. Nebuchadnezzar took the credit, as many people do. Pride also prevents people from receiving instruction. There's people who are closed to spiritual truth because of their pride. They're not teachable. You try to teach them that, their attitude is, I already know that. I've read that before. You can't teach me anything. The Pharisees were like that. Jesus tried his hardest to share truth with them. They hardened their hearts against Jesus. But the worst thing about pride is that it prevents you from the opportunities to be saved. You think, I don't need a Savior. I can do this thing called life myself. I don't need any help from God or anybody else. That's the most tragic of all. Today, as actually every time we open up this book... Truth confronts us, doesn't it? We learn some lesson. Do we submit to it? Do we take it to heart? Or do we just shun it? Do we forget it? Do we let a callous form over our hearts? Some of you have wandered from God, that place of intimacy with God, that place of dedication and devotion to God. God's willing to restore you. You know that you can skip step number two and step number three. If upon hearing the information as the truth comes Face-to-face with you, you say, okay, I'll submit to it. In repentant humility, I'll submit to it. That's the safest place. As Jonathan Edwards used to say, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. Humility. You have a relationship that's broken. You're refusing to reconcile. You're refusing to forgive. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Yeah, but that creep... Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Oh, but my parents! Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. You know, that kid of mine, humble yourself. There were two brothers who lived on a farm. They grew up. One went to law school, became a very prominent lawyer in the capital city. The other stayed at home and took over the family business. Very humble, very simple man. One day his brother, the lawyer, came home put his arm around his younger brother, the farmer, and said, you know, you need to make something out of your life. Make a name for yourself, like me. Stood up proud. Put something in your head. Do something right. 
The younger brother, the farmer, put his arm around his older brother and said, look out at that wheat field and notice only those stalks with the empty heads stand straight up. The ones that are filled to the brim are lowest to the ground, and the person who bears the most fruit is the lowest. That's the place for all of us. Not one of us here in this auditorium has any right at all for pride. Yeah, but I'm successful. God made you successful. Yeah, but I'm smart. God gave you the ability. God gave you the resources. There's not one reason that any Christian shouldn't walk in anything but humility. Well, I've got a few good things about my life. Hey, God's able to deal with that. Do you want Him to? How about just submit to God? And so, Father, we close the story. And I guess we just thank you for your faithfulness and your love that would cause you to chase us when we need discipline in a certain area. And you do it because we are your children or because you want to draw us to yourself and make us your children. And so, Lord, I pray that being teachable and open, we would receive instruction every time we hear biblical truth that we might submit to it. As we hear your revelation, as sometimes there's needful confrontation, I pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves, that we might have that restoration with you. And, Father, we pray for those who might have come, who because of the pride so far in their life have refused to turn to Jesus Christ, that today would be the time when they reach out and ask you to be their Lord and their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.